Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the New Books Network. My name's Marshall Poe, and I'm the editor-in-chief of the network. And occasionally, I like to get back in front of the microphone and do an interview or two. I have a different role in the network, but again, I really enjoy talking to authors. And when I saw Sereka Davis's book, Renaissance Ethnography and the Invention of the Human, New World Maps and Monsters, I said to myself, I have to do that one. Uh, part of the reason is that I wrote a book about, I don't know if it had the words Renaissance Ethnography in it or not. I think it did. Um, many years ago, it was about uh, Europeans who traveled to Russia, and I thought of them as ethnographers, so I was glad to see uh, somebody else, Sereka, and, and in this case, thinking of them as ethnographers. And so I just said to myself, I have to read this book and talk to this woman. So Sereka, thanks very much for being on the show. Thank you for the invitation. Absolutely. Perhaps you could begin the interview by telling us a little bit about yourself. Sure. Um, I'm a historian of um, early modern Europe and Europeans exploring the world between about 1400 and 1850. I trained as a historian of science, but the reason I did that is what I really wanted to do is um, be an intergalactic explorer. So... (laughs) I grew up on far too much Star Trek Next Generation, far too much Deep Space Nine, far too much Carl Sagan, and actually went up to university to be an astronaut. Uh, Not that I admitted to that. But, you know, um, as we all figured out that we couldn't invent warp drive fast enough, many of us defected to subjects like history of science. And so I work on the history of exploration uh, and cultural encounters from the comfort of my armchair, rather than um, being scrunched up in a tiny little pod. I mean, I don't even like camping. So I'm very happy <laughs> as a cultural historian. Now, um, you I don't know if you live in Connecticut, but you teach in Connecticut. Are you from Connecticut originally? Um, no, I'm as not. facetiously? I, <laughs> I live and work in Connecticut. I teach at Western Connecticut State University. I moved from the UK about uh, four years ago. So all my training is there. Um, but given my interest in early modern exploration, particularly of the Americas, it was clear that I was going to have um, very exciting conversations as I worked to revise the book of my dissertation um, by you know, crossing the Atlantic myself. It's almost the Stanislavski method of doing history. Yeah, I was going to say, you're perfectly suited to write about this stuff. I I was not. I'm from Kansas. Now that you've lived in the States for a while, you probably know where that is. And it's, I guess you'd call it the Midlands or something in the UK. Uh (laughs) I'd never gone anywhere. (laughs) Oklahoma was a long way for me. So anyway, you were much better suited than I was to write this book. And that's probably why it's a much better book. So tell us why you wrote it. I mean, I guess you kind of given us an introduction into that. But uh, if you could explain specifically why Renaissance ethnography and the invention of the human. Sure. So when I was an undergraduate in the history of science and we had to pick a dissertation topic, it was obvious to me that I was going to work on something to do with the history of exploration. Um, And um, that uh, moment of Europeans encountering peoples in a region that they had never explored before was very attractive. So that's what I did as as an undergraduate. When it came to thinking up a project for my PhD, I was at the time a curator at the British Library in the MAP Library. I still knew I wanted to work on European encounters uh, with the peoples of the Americas. Um, And one of the kind of uh, methods that had really kind of 
um, sunk into my brain as an undergraduate was that of historical anthropology, um, the work of uh, many early modern cultural historians who focused on strange stuff, you know, the seemingly irrational elements of culture, the jokes, the rituals, um, the kind of peculiar behavior, the impersonations. And I'm thinking, of course, of work by people like Natalie Zeman Davis, the return of Martin Guerre. Perhaps it was that Star Trek uh, training as well. I was interested in what looking at things that don't make sense can tell us uh, about societies. And so as a curator, when I saw images of peoples of the Americas, Giants in Patagonia, cannibals in um, cannibals in in Brazil, uh, headless men and Amazons in Guyana. I thought, oh, I wonder what they were reading. I wonder why those images are there. And I also noticed that historians of cartography ignored these images. As far as they were concerned, images were either political propaganda or decoration. There were no other options. But it seemed to me that we didn't know until we looked. We needed to analyze these images uh, and we needed to read very widely the the travel texts and look at the images and the sources from this period and then figure out what these images were doing. And um, so what I uh, went into this book looking to do when it was a dissertation was to learn about the history of reading travel writing because map makers were readers who wrote all kinds of stuff about what they read they chose things to put on their maps but as i worked the dissertation into a book i realized that there was a much more important question here the renaissance was an era in which the european notion of what it meant to be human uh, exploded whole new groups of people uh, were encountered who had never heard the word of god At the same time, there were these kind of um, classical uh, theories of the kinds of beings you would find at the edges of the earth, where the climate was potentially harsh. They might be ontologically different. They might be monstrous. And what I realized looking at maps is that they participated in a unique way in this dilemma. When you look at people who are different, are they just people who look a bit different or are they somehow fundamentally different kinds of beings? Maps made um, that geographical grid of the world very visible. You could see very clearly if a group lived in some harsh, um, at a harsh latitude like the, the poles or the equator. And they made those connections between geography, human diversity, um, and, and, and latitude very visible. So it seemed that there was a quite a a, a bigger book to be written about how we understand the concept of the human and making the point that what counts as human, who counts as human, changes over time. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> Very well said. So let me ask you this. In the beginning of the book, you talk about um, how Europeans explained human diversity. Now, they knew something about it before the uh, – do we still call it the age of exploration? I don't know what we call it. In any event, that thing where they uh, traveled abroad, and this both east and west, I have to say, and they mm-hmm. found a lot of different kinds of folks. Um, how did they uh, grapple with this? What tools did they have? What did they think they already knew? Um, many of the things they 
thought they already knew, came out of um, ancient Greek and Roman writings and also out of the Bible. And one of the uh, main frameworks for thinking about human variety was this theory of bodily humors. Um, so okay, this is like an ancient uh, classical way of thinking about how you know, different things in the body are shaped by external climates, uh, for example, how hot it is or how humid it is. Um, your humors are also shaped by the activities you do and the food you eat. And so um, the balance between those humors shape your mental aptitude and your character. But what that meant is if you moved individuals from place to place around the globe, theoretically they would change because different stars, different climates would be acting on them. Humoral theory made um, people in different places who look different the same overall anyway. And this was the message in the Bible as well. Everyone was descended from from uh, Noah and Adam. And if you were descended from Adam, you were rational and capable of um, becoming Christian. So that was kind of one setup where everyone was kind of the same and only different on the surface. But there was another interpretation of life on earth. And this was the notion of monstrous people. So kind of ontologically different beings who are different because they live in a climate that's so different that normal, quote unquote, minds and bodies, you know, can't, can't exist there anymore. And this is the kind of writing you um, find in, say, works like Pliny's Natural History. Mm -hmm. uh, you have these monsters, uh, these category breakers, who are the wonders of nature in distant spaces. Now, um, the question is, of course, how far away do you need to be from where the climate is nice, i.e. southern Europe, before you reach a land where only beings that are ontologically different can exist. In other words, when you traverse the whole earth, that does beg the question, where is the boundary between human space and monster space? And this is the, the question that suddenly became of practical interest in the 16th century. Once you have you know, your, your, your own country folk traveling around the world, you might actually be interested in whether their minds and bodies would degen degenerate in different places, whether the, the, the individuals you meet are, are degenerate in some way, perhaps in an invisible way in their minds, which you have to try and figure out from their uh, bodies and behaviors. So two of the main ways of thinking about humanoid variety, if you will, on Earth um, was kind of the kind of humoral theory and, and the kind of biblical um, paradigm whereby everyone was ultimately the same and only different on the surface and the concept of monstrous peoples whereby there were beings who might say um, have their heads in their shoulders have only one giant leg to protect them from the sun or live exclusively on a diet of smells um, those beings were fundamentally different physiologically temperamentally and yet um, it's as if there was this this boundary between human and monster that was Sometimes not there. If you lent on this boundary the wrong way, you might actually go in. So perhaps 
if you um, moved to the wrong climate, you could eventually find your body changing um, so that you were no longer actually human. So that was the anxiety that uh, was was perhaps theoretical in the Middle Ages. But once you have the you know, European circumnavigating the Earth, um, there is the question of whether you are now in those spaces where monstrosity happens. And while this may sound very sensitive, fanciful. It's the way astrobiologists think today mm-hmm. about life in other galaxies. None of us expect life, you know, in a plan- on a planet around Alpha Centauri to look like life on Earth because the climate is different. So my my you know Renaissance scholars are not thinking with any less rationality than we do about how far you need to get from us before you actually turn into different species. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I do wonder though if you could speak a little bit further about the way Christian writers and theorists and pamphleteers explain the appearance of all of these peoples that are not mentioned in the Bible, in places that are not mentioned in the Bible, and who Mm -hmm. don't exactly look like, well, the people that they imagined were in the Bible. How how did they account for these new worlds? Indeed. um, There were some indirect explanations that medieval Renaissance scholars could get out of scripture. Uh, For example, it was possible that beings who were very different uh, were the result of some kind of degeneration, some kind of divine punishment. For example, the the descendants of, of, um, you know, Cain, who who killed his brother Abel, or Ham, who jeered at his father Noah when he came across him drunk. Um, There were supposed to have been divine curses that deformed their kin. So if you ran into uh, a a monstrous being, um, they may be monstrous because they are the um, progeny of of someone who who sinned in a fundamental way. Mm -hmm. I don't want to to revisit the entire debate as to whether the people they found were human or not, or whether they were, I I guess, uh, the word I want to use is whether they could be saved or not. Saved. Yes. Um, Salubable? I don't know what does one say. Capable of salvation. (laughs) Salvation, yeah. Um, But maybe you could talk a little bit about about just that discourse, about how they grappled with this problem of of these, um, you know, either fallen people or people that had not met Christ, how they might be brought into the fold, what what could be done along the lines of saving their souls. Um, one of the um, kind of anxieties in, um, for example, um, 16th century Mexican Peru on, under kind of Spanish rule was indeed this very question. How can you bring um, these people to salvation? And also, what does it mean if you cannot bring them to salvation? Um, one of the um, the challenges, of course, was that um, the very process of encounter was catastrophic for native populations in the Americas. Uh, not only did diseases like smallpox you know, wipe out um, large quantities of people quickly, but um, the processes of, of forced labor and enslavement um, created, you know, much, much crisis, as, as we can imagine. Um, so the uh, the kind of missionaries in the Americas were, you know, there, there were the two sides of this argument. Either these peoples are incapable of salvation. How do we know this? One, they're not converting. Two, look at their nasty practices of human sacrifice, idolatry, sodomy, and so on. 
Um, but on the other side, there was the argument that, well, we're treating them so badly, of course they don't want to uh, convert to our religion. What is, what is in there for them? So um, right from the beginning, you have um, missionaries, colonial administrators, uh, conquistadors looking at outward appearance and behavior and uh, whether or not people have you know, kind of cities or fine uh, technological um, you know, skills like metalworking and trying to go from observables like that to divining what people's minds are like. And therein lies the, the entire kind of challenge of, 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 of figuring out whether people are savable. You can't see into their mind. You can only go from their kind of external behaviors and bodies and make you know, judgments that even at the time people knew were subjective, problematic. Um, people had different agendas, uh, which would, you know, it, might prompt them to pull out some kinds of evidence and not others. Mm -hmm. So one of the, again, uh, you've led me right to the next topic. One of the strange behaviors that they thought they saw and maybe they did see was um, cannibalism. Indeed. And I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about that. (laughs) Certainly. Um, Cannibalism was um, the very first motif that um, you started to see on maps of the Americas. So it's the very first um, emblematic thing that that map makers pull out. Um, Did that mean that cannibalism happened? Well, that is quite a fraught question. one of the problems that that there is for figuring out what really happened in in um, the colonial world is that very few scholars uh, are conversant with the enormous range of sources that um, survive everything from European sources through to um, indigenous oral testimony. You can go and you know speak to people from today in the Caribbean islands, the place where cannibalism was was first written about. And then there are there are you know kind of bone there's bone evidence as well which more um, kind of forensic anthropologists know about. And of course today we're very aware that a lot of European texts were written by people who very much wanted to legitimize um, activities they were participating, in, whether it was enslaving native peoples or, or taking over their territory. But uh, the consensus among the anthropologists is that, yes, there was some ritual cannibalism in various parts of the Americas, as well as in other parts of the world, including, say, the south of France. So this, um, the veracity doesn't seem to be in doubt, although we can be sure that it didn't happen every single time that somebody said it did. Um, Now, um, sorry, go on. I was going to say, what did the um, Europeans make of this? That, um, strangely enough, depends a little bit on who you ask. Um, Typically, in the the earlier sources about the Caribbean, um, the writings by people who accompanied, you know, Columbus or Vespucci, um, there is um, writing about all kinds of different people that the expedition met. There were the peaceful Taino, then there were the um, supposedly uh, cannibalistic groups like the Caribs um, or the Tupi. 
while um, this is usually seen as um, a sign of people that are who are who are reprehensible um, in the 16 mid 16th century the uh, French Huguenot traveler uh, Jean de Lery wrote a very sympathetic ethnographic account of the Tupinamba people of uh, Brazil who were one of the groups who engaged in ritual cannibalism and he pointed out that um, in fact um, they these People uh, lived perhaps in in harmony with nature. Uh, people who read Larry's account took some of those arguments further. Michel de Montaigne famously said, yeah. "Well, you know, the cannibals they don't have envy, they don't have jealousy. Um, these are perhaps um, the sort of people that we, uh, living in you know an age of of religious reformation." In, and, and crisis in Europe might usefully emulate. We here cut up you know, bodies and hang them up for display um, because we don't like the religion of the person um, in, in front of us. Whereas the Brazilian cannibals are much more respectful uh, with the, in the individuals they, they are subject to ritual cannibalism. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Did anyone make the, I, I mean, did anyone take the further step of saying, uh, as Protestant critics of Catholicism sometimes did, and I think we're doing just at this time, that essentially every Catholic, if he believes what he says he believes or she believes what she says she believes, is a cannibal because transubstantiation being what it is, means yes. that you're in fact eating Christ. Absolutely. So so this is the dilemma for, for um, Catholic commentators. Um, how much can you demonize individuals kind of eating human flesh when, you know, if you are devout, you feel you are doing it. Exactly. That's a tough one for them. How did they deal with it? Did they just avoid it or did they, this is different somehow? Special exemption? there's there's a certain amount of avoidance. Um, I suppose it isn't as if um, murder or, or various uh, various crimes weren't, you know, they crimes were crimes. And I suppose sure. um, the kind of um, engagement with the divine is, is 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 engaging with a different ontological being who is you know right superhuman. Exception. Yeah, right. I mean, you know, that, it's not an inconsistent argument. I don't think it. Mm-hmm. Um, so. Uh, Another thing you uh, talk about is the, the the and I'm very interested in these monsters. Patagonia's giants. Can you tell us about Patagonia's what? giants? How did Patagonia get giants? I don't associate with Patagonia with giants. Uh, well, in fact, they've been associated with uh, giants for centuries, as early as late as the early 20th century. There was a, a French monograph of, of <laughs> scientists, scientific writing about whether or not they were giants. Um, the Patagonians are perhaps one of my, my uh, favorite uh, examples in the book. So in the uh, 1520s, the Magellan expedition uh, sets out for Asia going west and um, – ends up uh, parking themselves for a while in Southeast South America where they meet people who are tall. That's that's of it. Um, and you have, uh, there are a couple of early 16th century accounts that were printed at the time, one by someone on the voyage, a certain Antonio Pigafetta, who wrote this long account of the Magellan voyage. And he talked about how they had seen, for example, a man as large as a giant, you know, and so this 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 guy is a man. But as you read through the account, the man as large as a giant slowly slips into being a giant. 
But you know what we don't know from the travel accounts and what a reader couldn't tell is whether these were just a few one-offs. Uh, or whether they, you know, they might just be normal people who are a bit tall. They may be a few people who were, um, had some kind of medical problem, but there was no clear sense of whether everybody in Patagonia was a giant, whether they might be an entire monstrous people caused by the climate being very, very harsh. It was a you know, very southern land. What happens when map makers get hold of the travel accounts and start devising, you know, a motif for the peoples of the America of, of, of Patagonia, is that suddenly you have these documents, these maps, which emblematize Patagonia by monstrous peoples, by people they describe as giants found by the Spaniards, for example. And the way in which readers in the 16th century read ethnographic imagery on maps is to assume that the map maker chose things that everybody had in common in that region. So if what everybody in Patagonia has in common is being a giant, and you, you see that word in all the captions, gigantes, then this is no longer a, a kind of one-off pathology of you know three people who are too tall. This is a group who is ontologically different. And then you have to wonder why they are so tall. What is it that has made them ontologically distinctive? And you see travelers like André Chauvet and um, uh, scholars like Jean Baudin speculating on why the Patagonians are giants. And one of the examples, one of the, the explanations given is that they were actually cannibals from further north who migrated to the south and then acquired this new monstrification, if you will, under that uh, climate. So um, that kind of reasoning shows how... Um, Travelers and scholars are open to the possibility that as you move to different latitudes, uh, your body uh, may well change. You may become another sort of species. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So essentially, you begin with a iffy observation and you turn that into a premise that then gets substantiated by some pictorial means that is the yes. giant standing for a place then it's assumed into fact by somebody like Jean Baudin, whose name I hadn't heard for a long time, but I was glad to hear it. Uh, and then we have speculation on why it's so, even though it isn't. <laughs> you see what exactly, I mean? exactly. <laughs> the, the, map, map makers are, are, are pretty important. You, know, yeah. you find them drawing uh, uh, children on the maps. You have baby giants with you know much bigger heads. Uh, Next to grown-up giants, you see uh, male and female giants. So once you have one of each, that does you know suggest that they can um, create more giants. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah, yeah. Skepticism was born in the Renaissance, but it didn't really um, flourish there. <laughs> I can say that. So, so let's move on to another couple of these. Um, I'm just fascinated by these. They're not exactly monsters. I mean, in the etymological sense of the word, I guess they are Amazons. I don't even know if people know in the age of Amazon what an Amazon actually is anymore, if you see what I mean. So ah, maybe you yes. can explain that it's not a company that sells every kind of crap, um, TV, or that, even a river. 
<laughs> Indeed, that that is true. Before the Amazon was a river, before the Amazon was even a river, um, Amazons were were a people uh, described in classical antiquity. This 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 group of warrior women who cut off one breast so that they could more easily um, draw their arm backwards in order to shoot arrows. So the Amazons were this this group of warrior women and in the late 16th century they um they start to reappear in in travel writing but this time travel writing about uh northeast south america about um, in the region that became known as amazonia right so but here's a case where we now maybe i'm going to overstate this or oversell it we know nobody ever saw this there's no doubt about it. There's no way they saw anything like this. Well, it depends on what you say. <laughs> I, I knew you'd they say that. <laughs> um, now, if an Amazon is a, um, if Amazon simply means uh, warlike woman who shoots with bows and arrows, okay, yeah, there's no reason. Yeah. You see, <laughs> yeah. there's no reason they shouldn't have seen such people. What we can, from what we know from ethno-historical sources, there were certainly uh, tribes who talked to various European visitors about warlike women and they could this could simply have been matrilineal societies yeah, where women yeah. were also participating sure. in and so and of course if you are a 16th century traveler and you have set off to the far west which will eventually become the distant east on a round world you know you are carrying ideas that you already have about what may you know be found at the edges of the earth and so um a, a, a tribe where kind of women are, are you know shooting with bows and arrows is intrinsically plausible and um we do have accounts of um not just amazons but also uh, uh people who allegedly had no heads that we know were part of the oral culture and, and, and of tribes in the amazon who you know may have been able to convey some of these ideas to europeans so there's no need to assume europeans made stuff up um they could have misread what they were seeing with their eyes or they may have been in conversation with native peoples about who they thought lived you know far away from them yeah i guess my point is is that they they may have been given this information that there was, in fact, this tribe of um, women warriors by the natives. That's entirely possible. But they loved that story and they ran with it. That's the kind of yes, interesting part. This is certainly one that was very important for for uh, kind of Walter Raleigh, for example. Yeah. Um, and one can't help wondering whether, I mean, if, if you're hearing a, a about a lot of different things, what things are you going to choose to put in your travel right. account? And perhaps it was, you know, choosing a kind of warrior, kind of a female kind of warrior people was a, an elliptical way of flattering his uh, female monarch. Yeah, I see. I don't know. I don't know how it uh, it served his or their interests so well. But there's something about this story that not only they, but even we find kind of compelling and fascinating. Mm-hmm. It's a good one for us. I don't know what they thought of it, but mm-hmm. yeah. So you mentioned these headless men. I have personally never seen a headless man. Not one that's uh-huh. alive. I've not even seen one that's dead, except on TV. I so, have to concede that I haven't either. Okay, I'm glad, uh, I'm glad of that. I think. But could you tell us a little bit about the headless men um, that they uh, report? 
Mm. So uh, Walter Raleigh talks about uh, two uh, kinds of people that then mapmakers pick up. Uh, one is the Amazons and one is these, these, these people whose heads are beneath their shoulders. Uh, so um, it may be that um, people like Raleigh uh, kind of – traveling saw giant shields on which heads were painted that led them to think oh there are those here are some people with their heads in a really weird place so that is the possible kind of visual cue for this kind of thinking um, again the um, stories circulating um, among among indigenous peoples include those of people whose heads are below their shoulders so that also may be one of the, the um the, the stimulators of this um, being. What interests me in particular about the headless beings is that they don't seem to have been intrinsically unbelievable in Elizabethan England. Uh, the reason I say that is that Raleigh talks about these headless people, the Iwaipanoma, whom he didn't meet, but he met, you know, 20 different kinds of people who met them, some of whom came to England. So he's suggesting you could um, interview them themselves, yourself. But he wrote up a manuscript uh, with his travel account, took it to his sponsor, who then edited it to make sure it put uh, Raleigh in, in the best light. See, Raleigh wanted to raise money for another voyage in search of, of gold in Guiana, which he hadn't quite managed to find. So two people who were kind of editing Raleigh's account for credibility did not delete anything to do with uh, the headless people of Guiana. Um, there were other things that Raleigh's you know, sponsor, um, so, so William Cecil, removed um, Robert Cecil, sorry, such as accounts of the Bacchanalian distractions of uh, of Guiana for drunkards, for womanizers. He removed references to small green stones, but everything to do with Amazons and headless people remained, which suggests that the idea that people who are ontologically different lived in the tropics you know, near the equator was perfectly plausible, just as for us, if life was found you know, in a distant galaxy, we'd be much more surprised if it looked like us than if it turned mm -hmm. out to be you know, a gas or something. A gas, <laughs> yeah. Jumping Jack Flash. Uh, it, that's a, Yeah, you make a very good point about that. Um, yeah, that's a very good point. I, I had never considered it in that light. But we would be surprised if they looked like us. Mm -hmm. We really would. So heretofore we've been talking about um, – I don't know how we talk about these people anymore. Tribal people? I, I don't – I'm not sure. People that generally didn't have um, cities and all the accoutrement of cities and the way people live – in cities. The Mexicans and the Peruvians did, though. Mm -hmm. They were much more like the Europeans that encountered mm -hmm. them. Um, how did the ethnographers and map makers deal with them? Mm. Um, the uh, first kind of writings we have about Mexico and Peru came from people who, who traveled with the conquistadors. And uh, what you see in these accounts is uh, people who are very awestruck by the uh, cities of Tenochtitlan, there's Mexico City, um, kind of cities like Cusco and Casamaja in um, in. Peru, they uh, draw comparisons between um, the types of architecture they see in 
Mexico and Peru with the remains of ancient Roman architecture and say things like, oh, well, you know, this city is as good as anything that the Romans built. So you have a lot of admiration of, of um, architecture and also of um, certain other technological skills like metalworking. What you see also in these texts is descriptions of uh, practices that the Europeans found less admirable, such as human sacrifice, uh, such as what they called idolatry or worshipping idols, worshipping the wrong god, um, sodomy, uh, you know, having children with your, your close relatives, for example. Um, but um, while maps um, show for other regions those elements that make made those people look very different from Europeans. So the Patagonians are giants, the Brazilians are cannibals. For Mexico and Peru, map makers chose not to highlight those things that made these people seem very different, but rather those elements that made those people seem more like Europeans. For both Mexico and Peru, it was the, uh, the cities... And, you know, the, the presence of, of leaders and organized societies that mapmakers emblemized those regions with. And I think the reason for this is what mapmakers were trying to do is create documents that help you to tell one region from another. They needed to make these regions memorable and distinctive. And once you have cannibalism in Brazil, human sacrifice, iconographically isn't going to look that different. So even though, say, for Mexico, um, the kind of very first uh, kind of letter that, that gets printed widely, a letter by Hernan Cortes, included this map of Tenochtitlan with a little plan in the middle of, of where, where human sacrifice happens, later maps didn't um, take that little detail from the middle. They just drew the, the architectural bit of the city. And you could say, well, that's because there wasn't enough room on, on the maps and practicalities also come in. But the choices that you see map makers making as they pick emblems for North and South America are the ones that help you tell that region from another, which does two jobs for the map maker. Firstly, it shows they actually are reading something new. So if a new region has been explored, how do you show that you are up to date by taking something from that new text that isn't in any of the old ones for the other regions? And secondly, why would you have a map at all? Um, a large map uh, with images and descriptions of peoples inside it help you by giving you a visual aid that you can refer to as you read these you know, convoluted travel texts about different parts of the world. So what map makers were selling is not their own personal eyewitness experience, but their work as cultural arbiters who carefully collated and synthesized and evaluated the testimony of all of these tricksy witnesses in different parts of, of um, the world and um, passed that through um, all the, the scientific knowledge, you know, classical texts and whatnot. And that is one of the reasons, I think, that we have that consistent choice across mapmakers in the German lands, in, in the low countries and elsewhere, of showing cities for the peoples of Mexico. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm very interested in the, um, I'm not quite sure of what word to use for it, the critical moment here, or the moment at which some of this evidence begins to be sifted in a more critical way. I know that when I was studying these texts, there was a kind of proto-explorer of Russia. His name was Herberstein, and he wrote a famous book 
rerum mm-hmm. muscoviticarum, and pretty much everything in it, whether it was true or false, was then copied by the people that came after him mm-hmm. until, uh, and there's some exceptions here, some predecessors, a man named Adam Oliarius uh, wrote what is uh, both a description of Russia but also a critical commentary on Herberstein. And it says Herberstein was right here and Herberstein was wrong here. And I have no idea where Herberstein got this. I think he was making it up. And everybody who has repeated it since has just been fooled. Um, this happens and this happens in the, in, in about 1650. Uh, are there similar people among the map makers and ethnographers that you studied who say, yeah, well, maybe not. Uh, this just seems to be made up. The evidence is weak. It's been repeated a bunch of times, but that doesn't make it true. Are there such people you found? Um, yes, and I would say that even even before um, you know, kind of Europeans are, are sailing west uh, across the Atlantic, um, there is evidence of map makers not only kind of sifting evidence and being skeptical and trying to figure out um, whether what a traveler has said is true or not, but actually writing those conversations down on their maps. And one example is this mid-15th century uh, Venetian mapmaker, Framaro, uh, and I wrote a written article about um, his uh, mid-15th century map. On that map, he talks about the concept of the almost incredible. He, <laughs> you know, he says, here are some things that are almost incredible. So they they... They break the kind of boundaries of of, of uh, what we know through our own eyes, but um, we would expect that kind of phenomena in distant parts of the world. And from Arrow's map, which is oh I don't know about eight meters by eight meters, this splendid manuscript is covered in writing. Um, there are a couple there's a, there are a couple of great you know, facsimiles and, and editions covered in writing, and he talks about you know what he decided to sh- to write about. He says, for example, I've decided to refrain from speaking about um, all sorts of novelties and customs, and diversity of animals. I don't have room for everything. So I'm only going to talk about the most unusual problematic things on my map so that we can have a discussion. Um, so um, this is a map where the map maker is quite open uh, about um, uncertainty. He talks about um, who some of his sources are. Some were travelers who went to the East and, and, and came to Florence. He talks about meeting the occasional uh, person from Africa. And he you know, comes out occasionally and says, you know, um, here are all the things I've, I've, I've found. Um, but, you know, I can't bear witness to this myself. And I quote, I leave the research to those who are curious to learn such novelties. Mm-hmm. So the whole map is full of um, kind of epistemological musings um, and um, upfrontness about the challenges. Mm-hmm. So I would say that, you know, I mean, there's a very old saying that, you know, people who are very old or who have traveled far could lie with impunity because the rest of us can't test, you know, their claims. And this is this is certainly something that even in the Middle Ages, um, there's, there are examples of map makers and geographers thinking this way. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I guess I'm just struck by the, I want to say naivete, but really it's a kind of 
uh, lack of thoroughgoing skepticism on these parts, their, their willingness to believe what the travelers say, that is they being the, the map makers and to put things that they've never, never seen in any of their experience, or maybe they've heard about them in classical texts, but by 1500, there was plenty of skepticism about what was in classical texts. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I just find it kind of, I guess they were just very open-minded. I suppose uh, they hadn't traveled somewhere. People had come back from sailing west. They even came back with new peoples and animals. They did. That's true. So think I want to have extraordinary, you know, animals in your kind of menageries. It's not that unlikely that there are unusual people either. And both Jean de Lery, mid-century French traveler, and Sir Walter Raleigh talk about how before they traveled, they were skeptical. And, you know, given the wonders that they already saw, um, even ancient sources looked more plausible. And, of course, skepticism um, about ancient sources was um, was in some ways easy because the Ancient sources themselves contradicted one another. So what was the size of a degree? Well, it depends on who, who, who mm. you are. So they themselves were this enormous panoply of, of voices uh, claiming things that were sometimes contradictory. Yeah. Um, they, they, if you were a map maker, you had never really traveled to the places you were mapping. So you were, you know, either you uh, recorded and synthesized the information that was coming to you or you had nothing. And in the end, you know, there 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 was ritual cannibalism among, you know, the Caribs and the Tupis. So sure. what they're showing was indeed what there, there was. Um, mm-hmm. The uh, forensic evidence shows that the Tehuelche people of southern South America were taller than the average European would have been. I mean, they might only have been around six foot, six foot two. But if you were um, a desperately poor person who went out and became a sailor, you might be five foot tall. Now, how much taller than average do you have to be before you're ontologically different? Now, that's an interesting question. And you see people talking about that. Are they tall enough to be monstrous or are they not? But um, even, you know, many centuries later, you know, you have this issue of, well, if you have an individual who is quite different, is there a point at which they become a pathology? And at that point, do they have a different sure. legal state? Sure. Sure. Um, there was an Irish giant of the late 18th century right. called... I was going to mention this guy. Yeah. Yeah, Charles Byrne. And he performed his giantness at fairs. He was about eight feet tall. He died young. Heart can't pump through all, all that, that body. Mm-hmm. He had left uh, instructions in his will that he wanted a sea burial. He didn't want to be displayed after his death. He left money for this sea burial. But after he died, his body was sold and put on display. Mm-hmm. And um, the last time I checked, about a, a year and a half ago in London, you could still go and see his skeleton for free in the museum in the Royal College of Surgeons in central London. And next to his skeleton is a label telling you this story and saying he did not wish to be displayed after his death. So what is it about Charles Byrne that means it's okay even now to disregard his wishes for not being exhibited after his death? Clearly he has crossed some kind of ontological boundary of tallness where, you know, he's no longer someone who's who we wish we were as tall as, but he's someone who automatically almost doesn't get treated the same as everyone else. 
What is it about the Royal College of Surgeons that makes them keep the body? <laughs> That's what, I um, what is well, with these the, people? The skeleton. <laughs> the skeleton uh, they, I mean. um, the, the, the museum there, uh, I'm blanking on the name, I think maybe called the Hunterian, or that maybe the one in the Glasgow. So, um, in the, the museum is full of uh, specimens that were yeah. collected, you know, various sorts of uh, individuals who had, you know, too many fingers, too many limbs, um, animal and human fetuses. Uh, and and the, the museum was meant as a uh, pedagogical tool. But there comes a point where um, it's very difficult to say where uh, pedagogy ends and voyeurism kind of begins. Yeah, voyeurism. I just wanted to talk to you for a second about what I might call the bat boy hypothesis in all this. And I'm not a big fan of the bat boy hypothesis. For those of you who don't know, the bat boy was reportedly discovered by someone in the National Enquirer, which is a tabloid in the United States. And bat boy, you know, is uh, basically a freak of nature. And he's definitely crossed all kinds of ontological boundaries. He has really sharp teeth and bat ears and so on and so forth. Of course, it's all made up, but it sold a lot of newspapers, Mm -hmm. really a lot of newspapers. And um, as I say, I'm not a big fan of this hypothesis when it comes to these uh, Renaissance ethnographers, but one must entertain the possibility that they were sticking these incredibly improbable monsters on their maps because it sold maps. Mm -hmm. Is that possible? Uh or should we believe that? Um, I don't, but go ahead. It It is possible, but um, there, there were two types of audiences and two types of spins for a map maker. And one was uh, that you were providing sober, accurate, carefully synthesized information. And the, and the other thing they could think about doing was to appeal to uh, people's interests in all things sensational. And they had to tack adroitly between these two you can these two options um there are some there is some corresponding correspondence surviving of uh geographers and and printers in, having arguments with each other uh with uh for example this this german uh printer called gruninger who produced some of the the german cannibal mapping from the early 16th century and there are scholars who could wrote in complained uh, saying you know gruninger loves to put these 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 images in um and then you all, at the same time you have um you know, accounts, sometimes things written on maps themselves, saying I'm putting these in because scholars appreciate seeing them. So it's it's never very, um, it wasn't a clear-cut case that adding monstrous uh, iconography would help sales. They might, you know, if, the, if it was some giant geographical tome in Latin, you you know, the, the audience for this would have been people like scholars or people who wanted to show how educated they were. So if your monstrosities didn't appear to have a basis in experience, that might backfire. And of course, experience here, if it means travelers who went somewhere far away that no one else can test, as a geographer, that's the best you can do. And uh, there were a few compendia where um, individual um, monstrous beings like the the headless men of of Guiana and the Amazons where, where printers would, would, would print some of that information and then add beneath it a little little digests of all of the potential textual antecedents and backups for the choice of these these beings. Um, but it was if I mean if we had um, you know spaceships you know going to distant places and bringing 
bringing beings back. I suppose we would now have videos and photographs, but if you didn't have photography and you didn't have videos and all the creatures or some of them died on the way back, um, you would have to take a lot on, on, on trust or know nothing. And of course, when you have fabulous uh, animals like, like armadillos coming back and extraordinary plants, not to mention plenty of indigenous visitors who dressed differently, talked differently. It wasn't much of a jump from that to Patagonian giants or Brazilian cannibals, especially perhaps the Protestants seeing their 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 seeing Catholics kind of symbolically eating their god anyway. <laughs> All right, I have a final question. Um I think it's the 500th anniversary of Thomas More's Utopia. The people right. who listen to this podcast know all about Thomas More's Utopia because we have the best educated listenership in the world. Um, it seems to me that a lot of what you have written bears on what might have been. Historians don't like might have been, but might have been in Thomas More's mind when he wrote Utopia. Now, no one has ever figured out what was in his mind. <laughs> <laughs> because the book is so strange. You know, did he intend it to be believed? Was it kind of uh, arch social commentary? Um, did he base it on any sort of actual travel accounts? Did he believe some of it? What Can you shed any light on this in the 500th anniversary of Thomas More's Utopia? Well, um, kind of 15, 17 is, is, is earlier than almost all of the, the maps in my study. Yep. So put, put that, that out there first. Okay. But by 1517, you do have um, travel accounts from the Caribbean that are suggesting that um, perhaps this is some this is the terrestrial paradise, and so this is the the big. Um, contradiction about the distant east not only is this a space where you might find monstrous bodies and behaviors but this is also where paradise was the earthly paradise so um you might say that the 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 kind of this uh western traverse to that region uh, where you know paradise was expected to be might well have been one of the things circulating in Moore's mind. Yeah, I don't, I don't know either. I, re- I really, this is just something that I've been thinking about recently because I'm a, I'm a big fan of the book, and I know that people still today don't. I, I don't know they really know how to read it. I think maybe you and I do, but we're early modernists. <laughs> Gives us some particular advantage. But then again, maybe I'm just fooling myself, and I don't know how to read it. I don't know. Anyway, uh, Sareka, I want to thank you very much for um, being on the show today and for having written a ter- terrific book. Thank you. And I want to um, close our interview by asking our traditional final question on the New Books Network, and that is, what are you working on now? Mm. Um, I have two next book projects. The main one I call Collecting Artifacts in the Age of Empire. I'm interested in how uh, exotic objects from the Americas and the Pacific ended up in European cabinets of curiosities and early museums. And by looking at how people wrote about them and classified them, I'm interested in how the concept of the European was invented alongside a concept of, you know, an indigenous person who has no technology. So the invention of this idea that Europeans have technology and there's some kind of indigenousness that doesn't um, by looking at objects. That's that's the main project. 
But something that um, fell out of the first book and demands to be written as his own is something I call Before Frankenstein, A Cultural History of Europe Through Monsters. Um, And this would go from the Middle Ages to Frankenstein and look at how we can tell the history of Europe differently by looking at um, the age of exploration, the age of reformation, notions of science and enlightenment through category breakers, be they the monstrous animals that reformers like Martin Luther said were signs that God was unhappy with the papacy uh, through to kind of individual uh, monstrous births studied by scientific societies like the Royal Society. Um, and by the time of Frankenstein, of course, you have people wondering whether there are there's a point at which human behavior can um, become so powerful that humans are pushing at that boundary between the human and the divine, and whether that's actually a very bad thing resulting in, of course, Frankenstein's monster. Mm-hmm. So, so those are the two um, spaces into which... Um, my original conversations are now going. All right, great. Oh, those sound super interesting, and I trust that when you're done with them, which will be very soon, right? That was a joke. Um, well, you know, in um, <laughs> geological time, yes, it'll be, it'll be tomorrow. Um, that you'll come back and talk to us about those books. That sounds great. All right, good. Well, again, let me tell everybody that we've been talking to Sereka Davis about her terrific book, Renaissance Ethnography and the Invention of the Human New Worlds, Maps, and Monsters. And it was published by Cambridge University Press. And let me also say, shout out to Cambridge University Press because it's a beautiful book. You know, they did a really good job. I look at a lot of these books, Sereka, and I can tell you they did a really nice job on your book. Mm-hmm. They'll be pleased to hear that. Well, they did. They did a great job. It's absolutely beautiful. The prints are great. Everything is great about it. So, um, and then. Thank you. Let me say to everyone who listens to this show, thank you very much. It's been a pleasure being your host today, and I hope that you uh, listen in again soon.